Hey, everybody. Welcome to All Have Another Podcast with Lindsay Hine. I'm your host, Lindsay. Thank you so much for being here today. Today, you're listening to episode 185, and I'm talking with Katie Arnold. Katie Arnold is the author of the new book, a memoir called Running Home. She's the 2018 Leadville champion. She's the mother of two, and this was one of my favorite conversations I've ever had on the podcast. We get into all kinds of stuff. We learn a lot about her life, a lot about the things that she writes about the book. She's also been a writer for Outside Magazine for 20-some years, and she has this gift to tell a story in a very profound way. She also have, has a gift to run very fast and very far. I felt like I connected with Katie on a pretty deep level in this conversation. Uh, we do get into talk about anxiety, and I've been pretty open on this podcast about my struggles with that in the past, and and we go there and get a little deep there, but then we talk about some fun running stuff as well. I really hope you guys enjoy this conversation and, and the honest way Katie and I both talk about our lives. Before we get started talking with Katie, I want to let you know that this fall, all across the country, you can join the fight against breast cancer at the Susan G. Komen Three Day. If you are new to this podcast, you might not know this about me, but if you've been listening and hanging with me for a while, you probably know that breast cancer is very near and dear to my heart. Uh, my grandmother had breast cancer. She then 25 years later had ovarian cancer and ended up passing away from that. But what we found out was uh, when she had ovarian cancer that the culprit to all the cancer was the fact that she was positive for the BRCA2 gene mutation. So in 2013, I elected to have a prophylactic double mastectomy after finding out I too was positive for the BRCA2 gene mutation. So all the research done behind breast cancer is very important to me. And I know that the Susan G. Komen Foundation does so much work for this mission. So you guys can get behind the fight against breast cancer and commit for those you love, someone you know who has been diagnosed or someone going through treatment, survivors, and of course, anyone you may have lost to the disease. So at the three-day, you will walk 60 inspiring miles so future generations don't have to. And you can visit the3day.org to learn more and find the closest city that this is happening to you. So if you register between June 11th and the 13th, you can save $30 off your registration using code FLASH30. Again, next June 11th through the 13th, use the code FLASH30 to save $30 off your entry. The three-day is sure to change your life and save so many more. Commit to three days at the3day.org. Grab a couple friends or family members and do this together. I think that that would be the most fun way to do it. 60 miles in three days. Wow. The3day.org. All right, friends. This is a long one. This conversation is long, and I just decided not to cut any of it, even though it's over an hour and a half long. I just loved the conversation so much. There was nothing I really wanted to take out. So enjoy that. And if you're loving the show, head over to iTunes or wherever you listen and leave a rating and review. That's super helpful in the show rankings uh, on iTunes and wherever else. Uh, but what I've heard is more important is that if you subscribe to the show. So if you haven't already done so and you're just popping in for the first time, if you could subscribe to the podcast, that would be 
super awesome. And then you don't miss any episodes or any kind of random bonuses that I drop as well. All right, friends, enjoy this conversation with my new friend, Katie Arnold. Well, today on the podcast, we have Katie Arnold, and she's the author of the new book, A Memoir Running Home, and also 2018 Leadville Champion. Welcome to the show, Katie. Thank you so much. Thanks, Lindsay. It's great to be here. So my friend Casey introduced us, and um, I just, I got the email, and now I'm seeing you popping up everywhere. It looks (laughs) like your book is doing great, so congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, it's been, it's been just so exciting to see it come out in the world and and make its way um, as it should on its own. You know, I'm sort of helping it along, but then you realize it has its own energy and it always has had that for me. So uh, it's just gratifying to, to know that it's finding its readers. Did you always want to write a book? I've always wanted to write a book. I knew from a very young age, about six or seven, that I wanted to be a writer Um, and that's actually possibly not coincidentally the same time I started running and, um, I've just always wanted to, to be a writer and it was kind of the lifelong dream to write a book. This was not the book I thought I'd write, (laughs) but like everything in life, you sort of go with what, what the energy is showing you and, and where your momentum is. And, um, so it's been an amazing ride. Yeah. Didn't you think you were going to write a fiction novel? Yeah. Yeah. I've always wanted to write a novel and I, and I still will, um, hopefully, but, uh, that was the plan. And in fact, that was one of the reasons that I started running ultra distances. Um, there are quite a few reasons. The the most pressing one was that I thought I was in the grips of this intense anxiety after my father died and running, um, for hours, you know, in the mountains, um, in nature was what brought me solace and relief from that anxiety. But also sort of deep down, I, the writer in me thought that, you know, if I could teach myself how to run for five or six hours at a time, then surely I could teach myself how to sit at my desk and write a novel. And so I thought it was the same kind of stamina you'd need for both. And um, so I was, you know, that was part of the idea was I was going to teach myself how to run and teach myself how to sit at my desk and write a novel. And um, the book that ended up coming out of that was not the novel. It was this memoir about losing my dad and um, finding my way out through running. But um, I'll get to that novel for sure. (laughs) Yeah, I, you know, I think this is sort of cliche and people say it all the time, but I always come up with my best ideas when I'm running. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, I think that's a very um, common experience, um, a shared experience. I and, and for me, it's always been being in motion is so, um, I, I think when you're in motion, your body is so fluid and it's that you know, that repetition, that physical repetition that frees your mind from having to think about the next thing. You're just doing this repetitious movement, um, like that running is. And so when your, your brain can unhook from thinking about what it's doing next, it's free to, um, kind of daydream and come up with these fantastic ideas or just ordinary ideas that in a new way. And, um, I think that's why, so many people have that same experience. There's such a deep connection between being in motion and your imagination. Yeah. You know, my problem is always, so like this podcast, like it tot- I totally birthed this podcast out mm-hmm. on runs. Like, yeah, love that. Right. You know, mm-hmm. um, but my problem is always, and I mean, this podcast came to fruition, but other ideas I have, um, I oftentimes get back 
and I'm like, oh my gosh, I had all these amazing ideas. Mm -hmm. Now I need to execute. And it's almost like you have this energy and drive to do it more so while you're running. Uh, Then you get back and you're like, how do I actually put this to action? Uh, So one of the things I want to ask you about that, which I think this is really interesting. Uh, First of all, so I'm obsessed with the fact that you ran your first marathon with Dean Carnassus when he was doing the 50 marathons in 50 states in 50 days. Um, Mm -hmm. I love how you were just like, I'm going to run for a little bit, but interview you for the story and you ended up running the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, But you... You know, I learned through your book that he wrote his book, Ultra Marathon Man, on the run. And he actually, like, recorded himself talking while running, which is brilliant. Yes. Did you do that for your book? Did you record yourself talking? Well, um, I'm not such, I'm not as methodical as Dean is. So he, he literally would go out with his voice recorder and dictate or write on the run, like whole sentences and presumably chapters that way. My, my method or process is a little bit more organic where I have these ideas and they'll come to me or sentences, whole sentences will come to me. Or, you know, I've been a journalist for outside for um, 25 years. And if I was working on a story or part of my book that I was stuck on, or I didn't like a word, you know, some everything would sort of come to me when I was running. And, um, but I didn't, I never set out on my runs to say, write a chapter. Mm -hmm. Like I, it was just what happened when I ran was that I would see my writing and my idea in a different way. And, and the motion of it would bring this energy to my thinking that I don't necessarily have when I'm sitting at my desk. So I didn't do it like Dean, but it is sort of brilliant. Um, I would just, um, oftentimes I'll stop in the, in a run. I have no trouble stopping and taking out my phone, kind of writing and notes that, that was sort of later stage Uh evolution for me early on. I would just try to keep the ideas in my head and before I ran with my phone or anything, and I would just try to like, you know, remember them in order. And I would get back to my car and kind of fling myself into my car (laughs) at the trailhead and find like whatever scrap of paper I could and just furiously write it down. And then I started carrying sometimes on my long runs, once I started doing ultra distances, so I'd be out for four or five hours, I would carry a little, um, note card and a pen in my running pack or my bra, like literally stuff down the front. (laughs) And um, so I would stop and write that. And then my method, you know, expanded to include my phone and I was writing in notes. And then I was pretty much the last person to discover that voice memo on your phone where you can (laughs) dictate into it. But, you know, that said, like, I wouldn't dictate whole like sentences. I would just, um, you know, speak my thoughts into it so that I had a place to remember, you know, that I would remember it. Um, but it, it would be pretty brilliant to write a book while, like literally write the book while running. Yeah. You save some time too. You're knocking out two things at once. <laughs> really productive. Well, and then, you know, I always say to my husband, who's amazing and, you know, super patient and, you know, whatever, like just understanding that, you know, when I would go running, that I wasn't just running, that, you know, this was like part of my, my writing time. And, but boy, if I, if I did dictate whole sentences and chapters and a whole book while I was running, then, you know, I would really, you know, he would be really impressed. (laughs) Your husband, it's Steve, right? Yeah, Steve. How did you guys meet? We met through friends of friends. So, um, a friend of mine, um, I worked with it outside was marrying a friend of his who he played ultimate Frisbee with. And, um, we were just introduced at their, um, a party celebrating their wedding and pretty much I knew as soon as I saw him and it wasn't just like a 
you know, a visual thing, but I had this feeling um, that voice inside was like, oh, this is the guy. And that voice in me has always been really strong. And I do write about that quite a bit in, in running home of that, that, um, intuition, I think that we have that's in all of us, but we, as we, you know, grow out of childhood and into adulthood and have, you know, responsibilities and then children of our own and jobs and bills to pay that voice, um, gets quieter and quieter. It's sort of like drowned out by all the practicalities in our lives and all the things we have to do. And the voice is so powerful and can really lead us, um, in the right direction. And, um, so it's, I I think it's, it's so important to, to listen to that voice and try to tune into it. Um, because it, it will, you know, I really do think it'll take you places you never thought possible. And, and so that was just that, that little feeling I had when I saw Steve and I've had that sense about running, you know, I've like when Steve would be like, what is all this running for? You know, when I was really <laughs> deep in the grief of my losing my father and I would, the only time I felt really, you know, free of that grief or that anxiety was when I was on the trails. And so I was running, you know, many hours and, finally, even Steve was getting impatient. He was like, what is this for? You know, what is all the running for? And I just said, I don't know, but I know that it's more than about running. And, and that was just that feeling I had inside that it was leading me somewhere. And I didn't know at that point that it was leading me to this book. I really didn't. Um, but it's, it's so important to find, you know, to locate that voice in us because it's there. You just have to kind of get quiet enough to hear it. Yeah. How do you get quiet? You go run. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I run. Um, I actually have like a sitting meditation practice that I do. Um, so I meditate and I'm not very, um, and I mean, the Buddhists wouldn't say like, you're good at meditation or not. Right. Like you just do it, but I don't have as much stamina for sitting as I do for running. So maybe I'll sit for, you know, 10 minutes a day. Um, and that helps me get really quiet. Um, and then the other way I do it is just walk, like I go on long walks, um, anything where I'm sort of outside in what I feel like is my natural element. Um, and, and that's, again, that's when you have those, um, kind of that moving daydream where ideas that maybe are in your unconscious kind of bubble up to the surface and, um, that those ideas come from that intuitive place inside, Um, so I have lots of different ways to do it. Music's a great one. You know, I, I do listen to music when I run, Oh, you do not not all the time, but that is a way that I get into that sort of, um, waking daydream or kind of moving meditation state is, um, you know, you get out of that thinking mind and into your, um, intuitive mind. And, um, so that's how, you know, music's important to me too. Oh my gosh. I, my, if my whole life could be a soundtrack, I would never turn music <laughs> off. Like yeah. I'm obsessed. It's just on all the time at my house. And just aside from when I'm sleeping or doing an interview, you know, uh, yeah. I mean, it, music's so great. It's storytelling and oh, yeah. I love it. And then I also just love, you know, some days I, all I want to do is hear the birds, you know, as I run and hear the wind in the, in the ponderosa pines. And so I won't listen to music. Um, you know, it just, it really is how I feel that day. And that's always how I've approached my running and training is just like meeting each day as it is and meeting myself each day, you know, so I don't really follow a training plan per se, or, um, because I want to be more fluid. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm kind of surprised you run, uh, listen to music when you run just cause you run in the mountains so much. And, um, just, you know, you've talked about kind of like the safety, just like being aware mm-hmm. of the animals and stuff. So how do you do that? 
Yeah, it's tricky. I mean, it's for sure. I think running with music is controversial and people will say it's not safe. Um, I just, um, I, you know, I obviously don't have the volume up loud. I have, um, earphones or earbuds that don't, aren't right in my ears so I can hear more. And, um, I also just, am, you know, I'm just aware of my surroundings, even when I have my headset on, I run with my dog. And so he, not, all, not on really long runs, but, um, on mountain runs that are shorter. Um, and, and so I, I'm just paying attention with my senses that, you know, that not just my hearing. Yeah. And, and I totally, I'm with you. Like I listen to music when I run too, not always, but sometimes and what I, I oftentimes I'll just like pop out an earbud if I'm in any kind of like section of the trail where I feel like it's extra secluded or, and I, I am like kind of just always looking around, but yeah, I know it's like super controversial. And if you listen to like, I've had, um, Todd Williams on this podcast, he's a Mm -hmm. safety guy in the running space and he'll be like, don't listen to music, but it's so good for your soul. It feels so good. I love it. It's Uh, part of my, for sure. Music is part of my creative process Yes, and, and, and obviously running is, is, is central to my creative process. And then music just feeds that. So yeah, it's a trade-off. I think like you just said, when you are in a section of trail where you might have a funny feeling, that's that intuitive voice, right? That's your instinct. And just listen to that. Yeah. I'll pop it out. I'll pop my earbuds off or I'll turn it off. Um, and, and there's no rhyme or reason why one section of the trail it might just be like the way the light is falling different, or it might, you know, you might round a bend and just feel like, you're more secluded when in fact you're just, you know, down the trail from where you were. But I think it's good to listen to that. Yeah. So you talk about being an accidental runner and I think it's really refreshing because runners, we runners, I'm one too. Mm -hmm. We tend to kind of take ourselves a little bit too seriously Mm -hmm. and overthink workouts. And Mm -hmm. uh, (laughs) do you think that it's a blessing that it kind of, you fell into running? I do. I mean, I think for sure I started and I I write about this in running home, but how I got into it when I was, um, seven, I ran my first race. It was a 10, 10 K road race in Virginia near uh, my dad's farm where he lived. And it was a total lark. He just suggested it. He was not a runner. He was not an athlete. He was an explorer an adventurer. He was a national geographic photographer. So he was certainly an outdoors person. Um, but he didn't have any like ambitions for me to be a runner or competitive or anything. And it was also a different time. It was the seventies. And so that was, you know, back when parents just let their kids do what they wanted, you know, and didn't have these, you know, aggressive ambitions or sort of, big plans for the kids. And, um, that was a real blessing because I did that race and I probably finished last my sister and I, but we didn't, I didn't care. I had felt that feeling that you get when you complete something that you don't think is possible. You know, it got into the finish line and it was that euphoria. It was that runner's high. Um, again, not at all based on results. You know, my results would not have warranted any kind of, um, euphoria. I was probably last, but it was the process that was so, um, thrilling to me was that, you know, the perseverance to get to the finish line. And so after that, um, I went back and did that race every year. Um, and that was just coming from me. That was never my dad saying like, go do this race or I, you know, Um, I think you could be really good partially like it would have been, you know, maybe that would have been a good thing if someone had seen my running and kind of helped shape me. But then also you run the risk of if I had gotten really competitive young, you know, risking injury and burnout. Um, and so running 
was just my private thing. And it was this, I had a personal relationship with running that did not involve competition. And I think that's why I'm still able to run, um, with such joy and pleasure and, you know, knock on wood, good health into my forties because, um, it's just, it's, it's so central to who I am, but not, I mean, the competition is just a tiny part of it. You know, it's really how I write and see the world and my creative process. Yeah, because you, when you first started racing, your first few races, like you realized you're really good, like as an adult, I mean. Yeah, right. In my, right, exactly. And all of a sudden you realize, and then I thought, well, wow, maybe I should have been running all this time. (laughs) And I had a little bit of sadness. Like, why didn't I compete as a kid more or join the cross country and track teams? And I know why I didn't at the time. My older sister, did those things. And you know, when you're a kid, you have this weird logic where it's like, if your big sister does it, you have to do something different. (laughs) Like there can only be one runner in the family. And so I didn't, I didn't compete, but I, but yeah, when I started winning and, and having real success at ultra distances, I did feel a little sad or just, you know, what could have been, but then I realized, I think that I am, I do have such a healthy balanced approach to running because, um, I haven't been competing my whole life. Well, yeah, like your story would be so different, like what you're doing right now if you were competing then. When did you run your first race? Well, you were 40 when you ran your first ultra, but when did you run your first race race where you were an adult and competing? Probably in my late 20s. Um, I ran a bunch of trail, like there was, there's a a bunch of mountain races here in Santa Fe um, that, you know, high altitude. So like 10, above 10,000 feet. And there's a 13 mile trail race called the big Tasuki trail run. And I think that would have been my first one. And, um, I placed second. Um, and then the next year I won it. And, um, so that, yeah, that would have been my late twenties, maybe early thirties even. Um, and then I ran, uh, a half marathon in Albuquerque and placed second. And that was on the road. Um, and so I, I was getting these clues that I, that I had, um, this sort of innate skill for it. Um, but I still didn't pursue, it was still very irregular because I was running all the time, but I was racing only sporadically because I think deep down, I must've known that the racing, if I got too deep into the racing, it would kind of, um, jeopardize that, that, you know, really deeply personal, um, relationship I have with running. So I was always mindful of, you know, that was central, like just me and how I run and how I express, express myself in the mountains and the racing, um, couldn't ever take over if that makes sense. Yeah. I, I love that because the racing takes over Mm -hmm. even for the common runner and it does does. like zap the joy sometimes. Not that racing's bad. It's fun and Mm -hmm. exciting. No, totally. But, but it's like, if, if you're so results focused all the time, it zaps the joy. And honestly, like right now in my life, I'm really trying to just live in the moment of being postpartum with my fourth baby and just like running for fun. And just, you know, if I feel like I want to run a little bit faster one day, fine. But like for the most part, just, just run, just run. Exactly. Totally. I believe that's so important because I mean, we can get so caught up in workouts and what other people are doing and the results and like, and then we just kill the joy 
And uh, I never want to do that because running has always been such a pleasurable um, private thing for me. And um, I never want to take that away from myself because um, it's been with me my whole life. And it's linked to so many, you know, it's, it's so deeply linked to how I am as a writer um, that um, the racing always has to be just in one, you know, just one part of the equation. Okay. I have a really weird, sad question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you had to give up running or writing, okay. have you ever and been asked I, that? I, it just thought, no, I just thought of it. I, I thought that if I had to give up running, if you had or, to give up one. Well, I don't want to jinx anything. <laughs> I hope running is not listening. It doesn't I would, count. I would probably give up running because there are other ways I can move in nature. Okay, sure. You know? So like I I could, I don't even want to say this. I could walk or, you know, I'm really obsessed right now with riding my bike. Yeah. So there are other ways, but writing is writing, like yeah. writing. I don't know, but that's such, I have I thought about it. That is a sad question. I'm an awful person for putting you in this position. (laughs) I just hope like running, I'm not like, yeah, no, I hope we didn't just jinx something. I don't believe in jinxing. So I'm so superstitious. Yeah, no, I don't believe in jinxing. So since I don't believe in it and I'm the one that asked, it doesn't count. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, I wanted to ask you though, because you talk about um, you won a race Mm -hmm. and you liked the feeling of winning, Yeah, but you didn't want that feeling of feeling like, you always want to win. So like, how do you, knowing you're good, mm-hmm. but knowing you don't want that to control everything, but also feeling that desire to compete and be the best you can, how do you yeah. make peace with all that? It's really complicated. Yeah. <laughs> it's a daily, daily practice. And so, um, right, because winning feels good and the ego loves to win, right? Like you get that story going of like, this is me, I'm a runner, I'm a winner, you know, and it, and people love that too. Like the world loves that storyline. Of course, there's so much below it, right? And we've just touched on part of it is that like, for me, it's a, it's a creative process and all these other things, but the world loves the simple storyline of like, you're a winner, you're a champion. And so for me, um, well, meditation is for sure a way that I've started to, you know, it's a, it's a tool I've begun to use to reconcile those two sides of me. Um, the one that doesn't want to get fixed on results and wants to be in the process because that's really where the creativity is and kind of the magic is, right? If you're only looking toward the end to like winning Leadville, you're gonna, there's so many things you won't see along the way. Or if you're only thinking about making that book a bestseller, there's lots of, you know, things you're going to miss. And so, um, so just knowing that the process is the most important thing and not always jumping ahead. And and really, so meditating is one way I've learned to do it because that is just teaching yourself to be present, like right here in this moment with what is. And um, that doesn't mean like you're not making plans or you don't have big dreams or goals, but um, it means that you just apply yourself to the work that's in front of you each day to get to the goal without making the goal the whole point, if that makes sense. And it's, um, again, it's just something that I have to practice all the time. And I find myself slipping into like results mode in various parts of my life where, um, you know, all I think about is this one result I want. And, and, and then I'll catch myself and be like, wow, I'm really, um, I'm very narrow minded about this. And, and maybe there's things I'm going to miss along the way if I only, um, look at the results 
Um, but it's, it definitely is a daily practice because our world is so results oriented and our culture, and we're all about like our likes and how many people follow us and, you know, everything's quantifiable. Um, and so it takes work to stay in the process and cause sometimes the process is sort of muddy and like messy and you can't see your way forward. Like that's what grief is. And what I write about in the book is that I, you can't see your way out. And so you do just have to take one step and then the next and make, you know, a, a concerted effort and be wholehearted in each act, you know, in every action you take. Um, but but yeah, it's, it's tricky for sure. And postpartum too, like you mentioned, how old is your, your most recent baby, your youngest? He is almost 10 months now. Oh, sweet. Yeah. We're in that fun, like smile and everything. I'm not a toddler yet, so I don't get mad at you for things yet. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But so postpartum is the same thing where you don't always see your, you know, you can't see that far in front of you because you're so in the thick of it and it's a beautiful chaos. Like I, I miss that, yeah. but, um, but it is one of those magical times and it's like grief. I mean, I think where time really takes on a different dimension, you know, when you're grieving as when you have a new baby and you're sort of, you've stepped out of like the flow of real busy time. And, um, it's sort of this magical space if, if you can let it be. And I mean, we fight it a lot. I fought it when I was a new mother cause I wanted to do my things, you know, and I wanted to get back to my life. And I definitely fought grief. I mean, that's why I think I had so much anxiety because I was just resisting just feeling sad, you know? And, um, so, but if we can just, you know, kind of give ourselves over to what is happening, even if we can't see our way forward, I think that's the process. Yeah. I mean, postpartum, it's so true. I'm done this four times now. And every time I look back like two years later after each baby and I'm like, Oh yeah, like you were yeah. you were really you had just had a baby even yeah. even if you're a year removed it's still pretty new. Yes. Um, and yeah, you're in that bubble. You are and you don't even realize it. I mean, gosh, this baby, I I was like doing live podcast recordings like 2-3 months postpartum and I look back now and I'm like I was, yeah. I was also a ball of anxiety, like you talk about. Yeah. Um, but I was almost like do like taking on these things to mask the anxiety, not, not to the outward world. Like I it was clear to listeners of my show that I was struggling with anxiety, but for mm-hmm. me doing podcast recordings and going to events like that was a mask for me that was mm-hmm. masking my anxiety. Um, and anxiety is something that you talk about a lot in the book, which I, and I think a lot of people will relate to this. I don't, you know, actually I'm married to someone who doesn't struggle with anxiety. So I see, Same. okay, Same. <laughs> he doesn't get it. Like yeah. I, so, so I see so clearly what it's like from the outside looking in to, to be someone who doesn't struggle. And he, he does not get this part of mm-hmm. me, but as I was prepping for this interview, I don't remember if I re- read this in your book or one of your articles, um, but you were kind of writing about how, you know, your anxiety after your dad died and how um, then you became into this anxious state of like every little thing was something that could mean that you were dying. You know, it's like right. every little spot you see or every, you know, every ache in your back, it's like, oh, that's this cancer or that's that. And right. um, I just like, this was just an hour ago. I like started crying. And when you write... Mm. At night, I am no longer lying awake in a state of hypervigilance, convinced mm-hmm. I am dying because yeah. I have felt like I have laid in bed wide awake in the middle of the night mm-hmm. thinking, 
Like you're not going to wake up in the morning. And that's the weirdest, scariest feeling for no reason. Right. Yeah. I don't, it's so scary because it's, it's like our mind telling these stories. Right. And for me, I've always had this really active imagination, which has served me well as a writer. I mean, it's, it's a great ally, but it was like, like you were saying, like after my dad died, it, sort of turned on me and it went into overdrive and it was, it was making up these stories that just weren't true that like, Oh, that ache in my neck must mean I have some kind of weird tumor or, you know, and I would get, I could hear like a news report. I don't know if this happened to you, but like I could hear something on, you know, the radio or I could read like the headline of a story and about some weird, strange disease, very rare. And suddenly I would start to feel like, well, maybe I had that. And I was very vulnerable. It was like, it's just, you're so porous to like anything that's out there in the world. And I would, I would just take that on and it became my fear. And I, I think a lot of it was the grief and it was kind of my, the way I was grieving. I was like, I took on my father's illness and, um, he died pretty quickly of kidney cancer. He was really healthy and until he wasn't. And then it was like less than 10 weeks. Um, and then he passed away and, um, and it was, it's just that scary feeling that things are happening that you can't see. Right. That, so I was convinced like that th- there must be things happening in me that mm-hmm. I couldn't see these invisible things that would be my undoing. And that combined with postpartum, postpartum is such a vulnerable state. And I don't think we talk about that enough as women and as just humans that, um, you know, you have, you've brought this new baby into the world. So you have this, this creature that's completely dependent on you. And you're also having those intense hormonal shifts. And you're having this major change of life, especially if it's your first baby, but not even like, I mean, I had this after my second daughter was born. So I'd already, you know, experienced what motherhood was like. And, um, but you like, so it was this just mash up for me of grief and postpartum and a little bit of midlife existential mortality crisis happening of like, Oh my God, we, you know, humans really do die. Cause I think that's what youth is, right? You don't believe it can happen to you. And, um, and then I saw, you know, then I had a new baby and my father died within two months. You know, I had my, my daughter was three months old when he died and it was like, oh, people really do die. And maybe that means I'm going to die soon too. And I can't die because I have this baby who's dependent on me. And so, um, it was just a very fraught time where, um, where, you know, for probably about 18 months, I don't know how long yours lasted, but I, you know, I, I, I would, you know, go from one thing to the next. It, I'm not dying of this this week. It's mm-hmm. a new thing. Yeah. You know? Yeah. My it's, husband, he's always like, when's it going to end? Like everything can't be a thing like this. You can't live like that. And you know what I find it happens. So 18 months is a long time. Mine go in like shorter waves. Like, you know, they're like cyclical. And I find that it's always, almost always around a big life event. Like when my Mm -hmm. mother-in-law died, Mm -hmm. when my babies, when babies are born Mm -hmm. or, when something exciting's about to happen, like oh, things are like, um, illuminated almost when it's like 
big things are happening. I don't know what it, what the distraction is, but you know, it, I forget the last thing that popped up and my husband was like, "Do you know what you know what just happened, right?" And he mentioned some major life event. And so, um it's hard though cuz it's like, "Well, I'm afraid I don't want to be, you know, like not diligent about going to the doctor if I need to go to mm-hmm. the doctor, but like you can't constantly be in this perpetual state of fear of every with every exactly. little thing." Yeah. Right, exactly. And um yeah, for me, the period of t- it was really 18 months intensely. And then I kind of came out of the grief and running was how I got through it. I mean, it was when I would run and not just, you know, running like it wasn't really like I, I wasn't on the roads. It was it was some it was a combination of running and being in nature where you feel connected to this larger you know, power or this larger pattern of nature and you feel small, but in a good way, right? Like that, that here you're part of something that's much bigger than you and that can hold you. And it can also hold all your scary, anxious thoughts. And, and so being, you know, running in nature was when I felt I could be relieved, you know, I felt relief from those fears. And it's just, it was just enough that I could get out of my anxious mind and just into my body. And our bodies know the truth. Like my body knew I was healthy. You know, I'd be running 30 miles and I could get home and make dinner for the kids and, you know, take them out for a bike ride. And I, you know, I, I felt inherently that if I could do that, that I couldn't be dying of cancer, but my brain wanted to say, you know, like, oh, you, you're, you're really sick, but the body knows. And so when I was running, I was really in my body. And that's why I think there was so much relief because I could get out of that super busy, um, troublemaking brain that yeah. was you know, concocting all these stories. Um, and so it was the running for me that, that I, I literally kind of ran my way out of my anxiety. That said, it's not completely gone. And I think I'll always have it. I think being a parent, yeah. and maybe especially a mother, you carry that now because you realize there's so much more at stake. Mm-hmm. And um, so now my anxiety comes and it'll pop up in little spurts. Um, but I, like you probably, like now I know it, like I recognize it and I know its patterns. And so I can sort of name it like, oh, that's my anxiety. And um, when you can name something, you have di- a little bit of distance from it. And it, so it's not as powerful. In those 18 months, like I was my anxiety and my anxiety was me and I couldn't mm. separate the two. But now that I have distance on it, I see that it's you know, it's this thing that rises up in me. And for me, I get it um, seasonally. Mm-hmm. I get it in the winter, which is when my dad died. And mm-hmm. so that anniversary triggers it, even though it's been eight years, you know, you think, oh, shouldn't you be over it by now? And what I've learned is that grief, you know, does not have an expiration date. And kind of it surprises you when it pops up. And, and so winter and those dark days of winter, even though I live in New Mexico, where it's sunny all the time, like the days are still short. And, um, and so I have it more in the winter. And so anyway, I know my patterns now. And, and, um, when the anxiety does come up, it doesn't last as long. It doesn't like grip me so much. Yeah. I hear, it happens for yeah, sure. I hear what you're saying about the separation for sure, because I've lived in moments in time where it is me like, just like it's you were saying, you. yeah, it it's, you. it's the heaviest thing in the world to carry. Mm-hmm. It's, mm-hmm. but then you can get outside of it. And when you do see it creeping up and you kind of know the things to say to yourself and to also like, I practice just like 
making sure my husband's aware when certain things are happening just so he knows, even though he's not the best at it and he will admit that, <laughs> um, kind of how to deal with me a little bit and handle like what, what's happening in my life and my mind. Um, what have you experienced any of that with your husband seeing as he's not an anxiety filled person? Like, has that been difficult for you guys in your marriage? Sometimes, sometimes. I mean, I, I'll, I'll answer this and then I'm curious to know like how your husband deals with it because yeah, I mean, my husband, sure. He worries, you know, he worries about like, you know, his work and his clients yeah. and, and those sorts, of, but that's different than the totally. anxiety we're talking about, which is consuming and kind of like one thing to the next, to the next, you know, you're in this constant state of, um, of vigilance. And so, um, you know, my husband's, what I basically like, I taught him to just tell me is that everything's going to be okay and that mm -hmm. you're okay. And it's sort of trite and it's totally not true because in the world, like we know, ultimately that's not true. Right. But, um, I just needed him to say that, those words and like, everything's going to be okay. And I think in some way that is true because even when things aren't okay, like you can get through it or, you know, the people around you will get through it. So, so, you know, if you wanted to really dissect it, I think there is a deep truth to it, but I just wanted that superficial reassurance yep. that, you know, and that's all I needed. I mean, that's not all I needed, but that's what I could get from him and what he could give. And, um, he's so steady that when he would say it, um, I just wanted to believe it with everything, every part of my body. And so I would, but you know, it didn't, it didn't take me out of the anxiety, but it was just this calming thing he would say. And, and that's really how he deals with it. But it's hard. I think it's hard to be with someone who's in that state of anxiety and you don't know what to say to, um, to ease their mind. And, and so uh, there's, you know, I have a really dear friend who's, who pops up in the book quite a bit. And she's my friend, Natalie, who is a Zen teacher and she's written 15 books and she's this incredibly wise person. And, um, so Natalie was really instrumental in when I had my anxiety and she would never try to fix it or tell me that like, no, I'm not dying of X or Y this week. She would just listen. So she would just sort of hold that space and, and I could just say these things to her and my fears. And she would say, you know, these kind of deep, you know, Zen things that didn't always make sense with my brain, but I felt in my body. And, um, and so that was really important was just having someone kind of witness, you know, the way my mind was working and, um, not try to talk me out of it. So she did the opposite of Steve. She didn't ever try to say like, everything's going to be okay because, you know, she is coming from a, a Buddhist background where it's, you know, there's a different story and, you know, you don't want to just put platitudes over something. Um, so it was like the combination of both of them, like Steve, just, you know, in the middle of the night, like patting my hand, everything's going to be okay. Mm -hmm. You know, like in, in like he was half asleep and he would just say it like a machine. <laughs> it's like what I needed to hear. And then Natalie sort of bringing me her Zen wisdom, which is that, you know, um, when we try to hold on to things in life without, changing, then we cause ourselves suffering that, you know, really the impermanence is what life is about. And can we, can we meet that? And even when it's really deeply painful, like when, you know, we're grieving our father's impermanence or we're fearing our own, you know, that is really the human condition. Yeah. I mean, I think what, uh, my anxiety ends up boiling down to, and it sounds like a lot of yours does too. And it coming from off of your dad's death is it's like, 
dying. Like, yeah, dying, (laughs) exactly. Dying. Like, and I don't know that I'll ever come to terms with being okay with that. I don't know how you do. Um, Do you practice Buddhism? I mean, I do, like, I, I study it a little bit and I, you know, I have, um, my friendship with Natalie and so, but I'm certainly not, um, any kind of expert or even devout student of it. I'm, I have a deep interest in it. It resonates with me. And so I'm, you know, I'm curious about it. Um, and so I think that helps and that sort of been certainly helpful to me as I've been facing, right death. I mean, our own impermanence, that's really what life is, is that nothing ever stays the same. And when we try as humans will, like we just try to hold on, right? We just grip. And when we grip onto something and we don't want it to change, we just suffer. Right. Mm. And so how to like roll with the changes in life, um, more gracefully and kind of meet it as, and meet ourselves as we change. I think that's the real trick because, um, you know, when, when we want things to stay the same, it's just, we just suffer with it. Okay. Everybody listening, I swear I'm going to move out of the deep stuff, but I have one more deep question. And I want to mm-hmm. talk to you a little bit about uh, Leadville too, by the way. Yeah. Um, do you believe in God? Oh my gosh. That's a deep question. <laughs> I, know. I, believe, I believe in a, like a, how would you say it? Like a higher energy, like an organizing energy, but I wouldn't call it God. Okay. No like the universe there, that there is a, a greater power. And that's actually a good segue to Leadville. I mean, like when I was in Leadville and I was running that race, like I was tapping into that energy of the mountains and kind of, and the world, like its own energy. And I felt like if I could sort of harness that or align myself with that energy, that it would carry me through the race. And it, and it did. And so that is my best description of what I believe in, that there is this greater force out there, but I don't think it's, I don't use the word God for that. Um, I don't really know how to describe it. Yeah. Yeah. Because I'm just, I just, I think that people seek religion and God for comfort in, um, like knowing that when they die, there's something more. And so, and I, and I know that, you know, people wholeheartedly believe in their different religions. Mm -hmm. Um, but I just, I wonder if, uh, feeling connected to that makes you feel more at peace with the mortality thing. I think, yeah, that's a great point. I think that it does. And, and this is my understanding. I obviously, you know, having lost my father, um, I have a different understanding now um, since he died than I did before, which is that I don't really feel like, I mean, he's no longer on this earth in his form that I knew him, but, but as I wrote the book and there's a whole storyline in the book that we haven't really touched on, but it's about, as I was discovering who I was as a runner, I was uncovering parts of his life that I hadn't known about. And, and I was going through his, um, much of the material he'd left behind. And as a photographer for his entire career, we knew he'd left behind this incredible archive of photographs, which are a very powerful sort of trigger for memory and storytelling. And, but what I didn't know that he'd left behind were his letters, so many letters and audio recordings and videos. And so he had this incredible multimedia archive a little bit before his time. It's kind of like, yeah, you know, the, you know, the social media generation now everyone has all those pieces, but my dad had that. And, um, 
I found them after he died, but I didn't find all of them at once. And the thing, and I found them sort of when I needed to find them almost like I couldn't have gone through it all after his death. Anyway, I was, it was too painful because there were some things in there about my dad that I didn't know and were painful to discover. And I write about this in running home, um, that, you know, we we think our parents are just our parents, but they are, you know, deeply complex individuals. And I know that, right. We know that now being parents, cause we're like, wait, I'm, I'm more than just your mom. Totally. I've got other stuff. But so anyway, as I was going through my dad's material and I would find things at these very opportune sort of, um, you know, c- coincidental moments, right when I needed to find something, I would. And I felt that this that there was this energy of my father that was still in the world, mm. if that makes sense, mm-hmm. that was kind of like pushing through and kind of, you know, just pushing through wherever his essence is or his energy is. I believe that it's still his energy exists somewhere in some form. And it's not the form we think of, right? But that there's that he's still this little pulse of energy or, you know, out there and, and that I was finding these things. And it, and in some ways, you know, my grief doesn't end, but neither does my father, like his essence, his energy is out there. And so I would find, I would find these, you know, bits of him or these, you know, letters he'd written. And, um, it connected me to him in a way that I, um, didn't expect, right. You think death is final and it is final, right? Like I won't ever see him in that way again, but I, in many ways, I know him more and better now than I did when he was alive. Isn't that strange that my relationship with him has continued? And I would never have guessed that because you think that, you know, death is the end. Yeah. And so much in my book is about that, that, that what we think are endings are really beginnings and that there's there's not, and this is sort of this Buddhist idea that there's not an ending and a beginning, but it's this continuum. And um, the, I really explore that in the book on this sort of deeper level of, of how life is this circle. And, um, you know, we think we're ending, but we're really starting something new. And certainly, like, I thought that my dad's death was the end of my relationship with him. And it was really the beginning of my relationship with myself in a way and a much, you know, deeper relationship with him that I, you know, that I understood him on so many levels that I hadn't when he was alive. I, yeah, I relate to this like through my husband so much because so his mom died in 2017 Mm -hmm. and I, so many conversations we've had since she died, he's like, I'm just picturing my mom, like at a party with her friends, Mm -hmm. like being her, not being my mom and like growing up. Yeah. Like she's always just to me, she's been my mom, but like, she's so much more than that. And like, it's almost like he couldn't see that side of her Mm -hmm. while she was still here as his mom. It's hard because we, you know, our roles are so ingrained. And as children, we just think our parents are our parents, right? And um, even as adults, though, too, right? Even as adults, even I mean, even as adults, we think, shouldn't our parents be more involved as grandparents? You know, (laughs) have all these storylines, right? Or, Or, and then you're like, you, yeah, it's hard to see that they're people with their own ideas and dreams and, you know, resistance and, and shortcomings and all of that. And, um, that we're just part of it. Like as, 
and, and that's what I understood when my dad was dying. Um, he was in, and I write about this in Running Home, but he was in this very in and out consciousness be, uh, toward the very end of his life. And he was in a lot of pain. So he was on a lot of pain medication. So he would drift in and out of consciousness. And, but even when he was in that dream state, he would be taught, sometimes he would be talking and, sh- and bringing forth these memories that didn't, weren't sequential and didn't always make sense. But as a writer, I was so fascinated by them because like, where did those memories live in us? You know, mm-hmm. and they were lodged and they were coming forth. And I was getting this picture of my father that was so much more complex than I ever thought. And, and I got this weird relief, like uh, that I wasn't, my sister and I weren't the biggest things that he was going to miss in his, in his life, you know, and mm-hmm. as children, you think like, oh my gosh, we're the center of everything. And that's just all children. That's not like, you know, that's just a natural way to be in the world is, is we think that we're the center of our parents' lives. And, and as he was, you know, sort of sharing, not even sharing, but just in this otherworldly dream state, I realized that there's so much more in his life that he was going to miss. And it was kind of a relief because mm-hmm. I was like, you know, I, it just made me realize that maybe we weren't going to be his biggest loss. And in, in, in a strange way, that was comforting, um, you know, that there was so much more in his life. Um, and of course, you know, he he was probably very sad about losing us. Um, but there was much more to the story than that. And uh, yeah, I think you almost can't realize that until, I don't know, until you're on the other side of losing them. It's in a way, it's like that way you really grow up, right? Because, and that's what growing up is, is realizing that our parents are not just our parents. Yeah, that's so, so true. Hey friends, I want to break in real quick and thank Lily Trotters for supporting this episode of the podcast. Lily Trotters is my favorite compression sock. Not only are they cute, they're comfortable, and they're functional. I've been working with them for a really long time and really believe in their product. This is a women-owned company, and they're doing great things in the space of women's running. Lily Trotters are great for whether you're running one mile, a marathon, maybe you are pregnant and you need a little compression in your life or post-pregnancy, maybe you're traveling and those compression socks feel really good on a long flight. It's also a really good gift idea, a really cute pair of compression socks to any runner friend in your life. You guys can save 25% off your order when you go to lilytrotters.com and use the code ANOTHER. Check them out, highly recommend them. And then I also want to give you a quick message from my friends at Another Mother Runner. Here's my friend Sarah to share with you a little bit about their podcast. Hi, I'm Sarah Bowen Shea, host of the Another Mother Runner podcast. You don't need to be a mom to enjoy the Another Mother Runner podcast. Each week, I'm joined by a co-host to gab a bit about life, then dive into a topic with a guest or two. Nutritionists, sports psychologists, coaches, and everyday women runners getting in their miles. Recent guests have included Shalane Flanagan, Kara Goucher, and Sarah and Ryan Hall. The interviews are conversational and easygoing, peppered with a lot of laughs. The Another Mother Runner podcast is like a best running friend who keeps the chit-chat going even on the uphills. Listen to a new podcast of the Another Mother Runner podcast every week or start off with a deep dive of our back catalog with nearly 400 previous episodes. Many happy miles. Thanks so much, Sarah. You guys go check out Another Mother Runner. Sarah's been on this podcast. She was episode six. So 
if you dare go into the archives just a little bit, you got to go really deep. Uh, you can hear my conversation with Sarah Bowen Shea, episode six of this podcast. But yeah, go check them out. Another mother runner. All right, let's get back to my conversation with Katie Arnold. What's the biggest lesson your dad ever taught you? Oh, that's the, a great one. The greatest. The greatest lesson is to keep your eyes open and pay attention and like be in the world, like, like live it and, and see it and take notice. Cause there's amazing, miraculous, and also very ordinary, mundane, beautiful things happening all the time. And he taught me that because he was a photographer and he never sat me down and was like, Katie, pay attention. You know, <laughs> that wasn't my dad's style, but he just lived it. You know, he was always looking for that, that moment that, you know, that interesting moment that happens just in life that, you know, he was present. He was really present. And, um, he taught me how to pay attention, which, you know, his way of paying attention was making photographs and mine is being a writer. Um, and so that I think was his greatest gift. And then also a really big thing he taught me, which was just, you know, be who you are. Like he, there, there's a moment in the book when he sends me this very intense, incredible letter where he reveals a lot about himself that I hadn't known. And so many of the things he revealed were not possible, you know, were not very flattering, but Mm -hmm. he, he just, I mean, the word now people would say he's just owned it, but you know, that my dad (laughs) used that word. He just, it was just part of his story. And he, he, he just, showed himself and that he, he exuded or he embodied this, this idea that you don't have to be perfect. You just have to meet your life and kind of, and, and just give it. Um, I I don't know if I'm expressing it well, but you know, like unapologetically, um, although he did apologize, you know, in that letter, but it was just more that I realized that you don't have to be one thing or the other. You're not going to be all good or all bad, but it's like everyone is both, right? And that we that both sides exist. And the best we can do is just acknowledge that and and not try to hide from it. And so that's really, I think, what my, my father gave me was that um, understanding that it's not either or. Yeah, and in the book, I mean, we highlight you highlight your relationship with your dad and and that's a huge part of the book but like so I'm I'm probably 35% in so I'm really excited to finish it though and I don't like to rush through books just to like Good. get them done for an interview because yeah. I like to like really soak them in and I'm really enjoying the book um, right. yeah but so far I'm feeling like so much strength from your mom Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I'm glad you picked up on that. You know, like just when your parents got divorced and mm. the mother that she had to be and got yes. to be in that time, um, what's the greatest lesson she taught you? Because you, you were two, right? When your dad yeah. left, when you guys, your yeah. parents split up. Yep. And so, yeah, my mother, the greatest, you know, gift she's given me or lesson is just one of this deep optimism and really like making sure you're telling yourself the right story. And, you know, we have a choice in how we see the world and, you know, do you see it as, you know, are you looking on the negative or are you looking at the positive? And my mother always found the positive in every situation, even in very difficult situations, like being a single mother with two young girls and having to go back to, to school to get her CPA degree 
and, you know, all the things that she did to support us. And she just did it with this incredible positive outlook. And, um, that has been her greatest gift because it is easy to see the negative. And, you know, after my dad died, when I was in that anxiety, that's all I could see. That's all I could see was that I must be dying. And, but yet my mother's deep optimism is in me. It's this bedrock in me. And, um, and so I, I'm, you know, I'm able I was able to get through that by believing that I would come out the other side. And, and, uh, so that, that certainly is like, she has incredible emotional stamina and, um, that of course you need that when you're a long distance runner, right? Cause there's yeah. going to be moments where you're like, I can't get through this, <laughs> you know, and, um, you just have to keep going. And that's 100% my mom. Do you, I'm asking you this because I find myself running to my mom, who is a pretty big optimist herself. Do you find yourself running to your mom or do you hide from your mom in, in moments of deep anxiety? <laughs> That's a great question. I think I, I do the latter. I think I kind of keep it to myself because I have this feeling that maybe she won't understand, Yeah, yeah. you know, and, or that she'll just say, you know, my mom, my mom's big mantra when I was a kid and always, um, is just get busy and do something, mm-hmm. right? Like if you're feeling down, just get busy and do something, which on the surface, you're like, oh, that's sort of superficial. Like, you know, I'm just going to distract myself with something else. But it also has this deeper meaning, which is when you get busy and do something, like you apply yourself to what is in front of you, it will carry you through. You will, like everything leads you to the next place. And and so I sort of morphed her, just, you know, her platitude, like just get busy and do something into my own strategy for life, which is like, yes, apply yourself, like put your, you know, do what's in front of you and, you know, it'll carry you through. Um, but I, I don't think I probably, you know, reach out to my mom as much when I'm in those darker places because, um, I don't know that she's, you know, I don't, I, I worry that maybe she wouldn't understand or know what to say, you know, because she does like, seems such a bright person. Yeah. And she's just like, doing the tasks at hand. Like I'm doing what needs to get done and do what's, yeah, do what needs to get done. And, and, um, it is sort of this Buddhist idea of like doing what's in front of you and do and applying yourself with wholeheartedness to it. Um, yeah, but my mom was a big believer in like, just stay busy and, and you'll feel better. And, and, and that's a, there's a great truth to that. Totally. Totally. But when you're in the, in the midst of deep, deep depression or anxiety, yeah. like it's, it feels it's impossible at the time. Yeah. yeah exactly. Um, but it's many true. Days when I had to force myself to go out for that run, but I almost always, oh, sure. I'm sure you've had that too, where you almost always like 99.9% of the time feel better when you get back. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Well, and I always think about this. This is like, I always think like if something truly were bad happening, would I be happy that I spent 10 weeks in this mess in my head and not just like fully living my life. But that's easy to say after the fact when you're not in the throes of it. But, um, I think that that's always a good, healthy perspective to think about too. Like looking back, like, would I be glad that I acted this way? Probably not. Right. No. But when you're in it, you're convinced. You're convinced. My, my pattern is like when I'm in it, I'm convinced that this is the time. Like it's been this, you know, it's been anxiety until now, but this is the time when it's real, you know? And, and even now, now that I know that I'm like, oh yeah, there goes my mind, you know, and running is such a good way to study your mind because you're alone with it for so long and you can get to know its patterns and like, it's little, 
little tricks and, and the way it works. And, and so I think that really helped me see my anxiety was just studying my mind when I ran and I, I could see the stories I was telling myself. And really we can, we, you know, can change the stories we tell ourselves from those negative into the more positive stories. And, um, that's certainly what I've learned, you know, and what, one of the greatest gifts of this, of grieving my dad and writing this book is understanding that we, you know, there's stories we can tell ourselves that hold us back. And then there's stories that can set us free. Yeah. Um, Leadville, let's cover it quickly because I'm, I'm like, I know we need to move along here, but, um, you had, before you won Leadville in 2018, you had Mm -hmm. won a good amount of races and placed Mm -hmm. really high, but like going into Leadville, did you know or expect that you could be the person who won the race? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I knew I could be competitive because, um, I knew, you know, I live at 7,000 feet elevation in Santa Fe and I train up until 12,000 feet, which is, you know, the high point of Leadville. So I knew that I had, um, you know, that I was coming from a, a strong training and that the conditions where I live match those of Leadville. And I knew that I'm, you know, I know that I'm a strong mountain runner and I'm a very good climber. So those, those things I knew. And I also knew that I had done the training and, um, I'd put in the miles. So, um, you know, I think that I had this sense that I could be competitive. Did I ever think I would win it? I mean, not in my conscious brain. No. Um, you know, and I, and I think that's why I was successful because again, just looping back to where we started the conversation, I was not focused on winning Leadville. I was focused on preparing for it and training and, and I was focused on just doing the work to get to the starting line. And so because I wasn't ahead of myself and only fixated on that result, there was so much more kind of joy in the process. And I was so much more present to the training, um, because I wasn't only thinking about the end. And, um, I think that set me up perfectly to be, you know, at peak form, um, going into Leadville and also in this really deep place, um, you know, for lack of a better word, just sort of like my mental preparation or my spiritual training has, was like totally aligned where, um, I wasn't running to win. I was running to like, be in exactly the moment I was. And, um, that translated to running my very best race because, um, I just, I met each moment as it happened during the race. And that was really my goal going in. Um, and so there are moments when like I was running and people, spectators, you know, we're, we're seeing that I was closing the gap with the woman ahead of me who was in first place and they were screaming, you know, yelling like, Oh, she's six minutes up or she's three mm-hmm. minutes up. And I would just smile. And I just, I, I was like, well, that's great to know, but I'm not changing anything. I'm just running where I am in myself right now. And, um, you know, because I didn't get out of my body and get ahead into this, like, you know, scenario of winning, I just stayed, I stayed right where I was and I was able to run my own race and I was able to catch her and pass her. And I don't know, it was sort of this just really magical day where everything aligned in my life, you know, my running and my training and being a writer and having written this book that was about to come out and being a mother, you know, my children were there to see me and they were this incredible cheerleading force. They were in a different outfit or costume every time. Who orchestrated that? 
Um, my friend Susie in Boulder, who um, was my crew, and she, it was amazing. And so it was this perfect feedback loop, you know, of of being at peak training, you know, like my physical self met my mental state, which was just to not get ahead of myself and try to win, but just to be exactly where I was. And I had done all this meditation, which was really helping me stay present. And then my children were there and they of course have been through this whole journey with me. And, um, and Steve, my husband paced me for, um, 12 miles over hope pass. And so it was like, every part of my life converged on that one day in this really magical way. Um, yeah. And, and it was just beyond any expectation. Okay. Follow up questions from everything you just said. Um, when you passed the female in first, did you Mm -hmm. like, what kind of runner are you? Did you give her like a way to go? Like, what did that look like? I'm a very social runner and I like to talk when I run and I like to, you know, connect with other runners. Um, not all the time, but you know, if given the opportunity. And so I knew I was catching her and did you know her? I, like, did you I know who know she her. was? I didn't know her. Okay. No, but, um, uh, when I caught her, I had this moment where I thought we were going to chat <laughs> and I thought, well, maybe we'll run together a little bit. She and I both had pacers, which is incredibly helpful. And I've learned that I really need that in, you know, any race over 50 or 60 miles, like they really help you, um, stay focused and stay positive. And, and, um, so we each had our own pacer, but I did have this, this fantasy that like I would <laughs> catch her and we would like, you know, we would have a conversation or chat or maybe share uh, some miles. And that was not what happened. You know, we were just in different phases of our race. Sure, yeah. and, um, and so I caught her and it was pretty clear that, she, you know, she wasn't wanting to chat. And yeah. so I just, you know, started chatting with my pacer and we just kept going. But yeah, I, I do love to visit with people <laughs> when I run. It's great. Everyone has their own stories. And it's, you know, I think the writer in me loves to hear what people's stories are and um, how they got to where they are. But that was not to be that day. <laughs> what what mile did you pass her at? I caught her at about mile 62, okay. which is ironic because that's, you know, the the beta I had gotten from people and advice I'd gotten from other runners who've done Leadville, which has one of the lower finishing rates, I think, um, was that, you know, don't even think of it as a race. And, you know, the mile, the race doesn't even begin until mile 62 or 68 even. So it was just so interesting that that is where I caught her. And sure enough, like that's when the race started for me. But that advice was really helpful because the whole first, you know, two thirds of the race, I was just running and I was just like, I'm just here. I'm just running. I'm not changing my, my strategy. My strategy was just to be in a flow state for as long as I could. And to, as I was saying before, use that energy in the mountains, that, that, that energy that the mountains have. And if I could tap into that, they would carry me along. And so, um, that was, you know, that was my strategy. And, And I was able to do that the whole day, you know, and that was not what I expected. I thought that I would eventually, pop out and get into the pain cave and suffer a lot. And, um, I don't know, it just didn't happen. (laughs) How many hours did it take you to complete? It took me 19 hours and 53 minutes. Oh, wow. I have 20 hours. Yeah. Was that, did you have 20 in your head at all? Or was that part of the, like, just not thinking about that? Just Yeah. I, I hadn't really thought about time. I mean, I had done a little research to see what some of the top women in previous years had done just so I knew. Um, but, it was only about a week before the race. And this is also part of my process is that I don't, 
um, really fixate on time and or pace until just before the race, you know, cause, and, um, I, I started doing the numbers and I started, you know, calculating my pace at a really conservative, you know, maybe having like an okay day, having a good day and having like a great day. So I did three ranges and, you know, every time I came up with it, it was somewhere between, you know, on a conservative end, like 21 to 22 hours. And I knew that was conservative, but I didn't think I, I didn't really ever think I'd break 20. And so that came as this incredible, you know, surprise, um, maybe at about mile 13 when I knew, you know, my pacer was giving me information that we were, you know, my lead over Addy was increasing and, and um, that there'd be have to be a pretty dramatic reversal of her fortune and my own for her to catch me, you know, like I would have to just take a real bad dive, you know, and she would have to just come out, you know, come up out of, you know, whatever slump she was in. And so we, you know, we determined that that probably would not happen. And so the win was in my reach. And then I asked my pacer, I had lost track of what time it was. My, my watch had died and I just didn't know what time it, it was in. It was nighttime. And he said, it's 10 o'clock. And I did the math and I had about 12 miles to go. And, um, I said, do you think we could break 20? And he said, I think so. And so then all of a sudden the goal shifted and it was really only in those last two hours that then I even had a time, you know, that I wanted to get under 20. Um, and, and he got really quiet toward the end and, um, the, the lights of the finit of Leadville came into view, the sort of, you know, lights overhead and, um, and, and Wes hadn't been saying much. And I thought, oh, gosh, you know, we must be over 20. He's not saying anything. And I just he said that he was going to take my pack and that he would run in with it because in Leadville, pacers can carry stuff for you. And he, he's like, you just run in with nothing, you know, cross the line with nothing. You've got this win. I mean, he, it was incredible that I was even winning Leadville and that like the time didn't really factor in. And I just said, you know, I said, you go ahead. And I said, you know, we didn't make 20, did we? And he said, no, it's, he said, yes, it's, it's 11, you know, 50 PM. And I had, um, you know, like half a mile to go or not even. And I couldn't believe it that I was going to come in under 20. And, and sure enough, I'm crossing the finish line. And, you know, it'd been raining, like spitting cold rain. And all of a sudden, the clouds parted. And I'm not kidding, there was a shooting star above the finish line. Oh, my gosh. And we're crossing the finish line. And Wes, you know, my pacer was incredible. He just said, you know, someone up there is looking after you. And I could, you know, it was just you couldn't have scripted a better ending to that day than that shooting star kind of uh, popping up out of nowhere. Wow. Um, but yeah, really, you know, like that's part of what I'm saying about staying just in the, in the process of it and not getting ahead of myself. Um, and it's just a constant, um, it, it, I constantly have to work on that. Cause like I said, our human minds want to get ahead and our ambition, I'm very ambitious, you know, and, um, you want certain things. And every time I catch myself, um, I have to bring it back and be like, okay, just stay with what is like you're doing your run today. And, and the run today is, you know, you're going to run fast at sea level or whatever, and not to get so far ahead of myself that I'm, you know, trying to break 20 hours at Leadville. Because if you had, you know, if I had thought about that ahead of time, I would have thought that was nuts. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I love that he got quiet, though. He was like, was he just tired? Or was he just like trying to get you out of your head? He got really quiet on one hand and he's a, 
amazing pacer. I mean, I absolutely love Wes and, uh, I hopefully I'll be able to run with him again, but he, um, he got quiet because on one hand he was working the phone behind me. So he was like a super pacer in that he was communicating with, um, my family oh, and yeah. uh-huh. at the finish line. And he was doing that all while running in the yeah. dark. And I didn't know it. So he was <laughs> texting, you know, he was, she, you know, he's like, she's looking good. She, we're coming in. We should, you know, whatever I he was, you know, he was doing the comms, like the communications. Uh-huh. But the other thing is he did get kind of quiet and I didn't know why. Um, but, but, um, afterwards I asked him when we got to the finish line, I was like, you know, Wes, you got really quiet. And he, he said, I didn't want you to know this, but he had run the Pikes Peak marathon that day. He had run oh. like up Pikes Peak, you know, tw- I, I don't know what it is. He had just maybe done the up, but that's still 13 you miles. Didn't, he didn't want you to know. He didn't want me to worry about that he was tired. But he was and tired. <laughs> he was tired. And I just like gave him the biggest hug. And I said, you are incredible. And thank God I didn't know that. Because wow. I would have been stressing about him the whole time. But yeah, he. I think he was getting a little tired. I mean, I was tired too. Are you kidding? I'd run, you know, 98 miles. Right. But, um, but yeah, it was incredible. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's funny. How did you meet Wes? I met him through my brother-in-law, um, they had gone to business school together and I was scrambling because I didn't have a crew, right? You know, it's hard to ask for help and say to people, you know, I need you to pace me. And I knew then I would be fast. Like, and so it's hard to find, you know, it's hard to ask like for a pacer and to also say like, you know, make sure that person is fast enough because I just didn't know how quote unquote fast I would be late in the game. But I knew that I needed someone, um, you know, if I was having a fantastic day, who could um, kind of keep up and pace me to, to a strong finish? And so uh, that was just a learning curve for me as to, to ask, you know, and, and I think that's why ultra running or running in general is so great, because it really does teach you to ask for help. And um, so I was scrambling at the last minute to find um, a crew and, and really good pacers. And I knew Steve would pace me over Hope Pass. And, um, and then at the last minute, I thought I would have this other pacer for the, uh, like 20 miles in the middle. And then my brother-in-law, um, introduced me to Wes over email. And initially Wes said he couldn't do it probably because he was doing bikes. Yeah. Yeah. But then he <laughs> but then, was like, wait, I want to pace the woman who yeah. might win. <laughs> no, then something, I don't know. This is just like the beauty of the world, right? Like something must have shifted in him that he wanted to do it. And it was just the exact right people. And and it took me back to when I was um, in about to go into labor and I had a birthing coach or a doula. And I was really bummed out because my doctor was going to be at the bottom of the Grand Canyon rafting and he wasn't going to be there for the birth. And, um, you know, you're just as an anxious like mother to be, you want to control all these things. And my doula just said, you know, the people who are meant to be in the room are going to be in the room. And I love that. And I use that a lot. Like, and I, I use that with Leadville. I was like, the people who are meant to be there with me at Leadville are going to be there. And it was completely true. You know, I had the best crew and it came together really last minute. Oh, that's so awesome. (laughs) I have to ask you one more thing before the end of the podcast, because I swear we could talk for three hours. I could just keep going, but, um, there's so many things to cover, but one of the things really quick I wanted to ask you about is just your column in outside running. Mm -hmm. I love the raising rippers. I, I love your parenting philosophy Mm. and style. 
Um, when I was prepping for this interview, I stumbled upon your 2014 article about not letting sports like run, you know, youth sports run your family. Mm -hmm. And look, that article is old. Like, I don't know why I haven't read it yet, but (laughs) (laughs) Um, it's so relevant. right? We have to deal with that all the time as parents. Yeah. And like my, my kids are four, six, two, and then the baby. And so like my six-year-old is really the only one that's at the age where like, well, I guess technically people start throwing their kids and stuff at like two, three these days. But like we have decided to be like extremely um, decisive about what we're going to be willing to put him in and like what we're going to commit to because I'm not going to live that life of where I'm complaining about like, oh, I have to drive this kid there and that kid there. And look, it's going to pick up. There's going to be lots of activities. But like, um. I don't know. Can you just talk about your, your ideals on that and what kind of how you guys try to structure that in a healthy way in your life with your two girls? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's ongoing and it changes all the time as they get older, but I will say that our strategy or our kind of philosophy from the start has been, um, to raise them like with, in wild places with the outdoors and adventure being a huge part you know, one of our biggest family values. And that's just because my husband and I are both, um, he's really into backcountry skiing and, you know, used to be into trail running and then he got injured. Um, but you know, like the outdoors is so important to us and being in the backcountry and doing wilderness trips, because again, there's so much, you know, there's such beauty out there. And, um, so that was primary is that we wanted to, to raise our kids that way. And so, um, as such, like the competitive or team or organized sports, however you want to see it or call them, needed to fit into that. Um, and so we weren't ever going to be, and, and maybe I'll be singing a different tune as my girls get older, my girls are eight and 10. Um, but, you know, like only schlepping them to practice and not getting out. So for our own family time. So so that's always been central is the adventures have to be a big part of the mix. And, um, and then the, the sports need to fit into that, but can't dominate it. Um, and so I think because we've both been so clear about that, and I mean, we started taking our girls, um, on river trips in the wilderness when they were babies and, um, you know, we've really raised them that way. So they love it and know it. And, um, that that will always be a really defining part of our family. And so it helps give structure to the other parts. But I believe me, I think that it will get harder and harder as oh, they sure. get older. And I just wrote a, a post on Instagram about this recently, which I, we took our girls up to a lacrosse tournament in Durango and, um, which was fantastic, but it just gave me cause to reflect on, you know, is the balance right? And I think that, you know, if, if you're spending more time in the car, right, then you are um, like being active yourself. And if you're always driving around, and if you don't have time to get outside on a family hike or walk or whatever your, you know, non competitive, non organized thing is, then chances are maybe the balance is a little bit off. And so I think you just have to be willing to just, you know, re-examine it periodically to make sure that you're, you haven't been swallowed by the youth sports, you know, <laughs> corporation, right? Because a lot of it is about money-making. Sure. And, uh, but sports are so good for kids. Right. I don't ever give the message that, that they're not, and they're especially great for girls too. And so we really believe in it. It's just like, we just have to keep making sure it's the right balance for our family. Totally. 
because I get pretty grumpy if we haven't spent enough time like out in nature or sleeping out or can't, you know, going backpacking or camping and, you know, they'll be like, mommy needs to go for a run. You're really grumpy <laughs> or like, we need to take a river trip. Yeah, no, I, I had tweeted something about this like a few weeks ago about like, I know something a little bit smart alecky, like you're not allowed to complain about, um, you know, being busy with everything. If you voluntarily sign your children up for like 9 million different activities. Um, and I got a little bit of lashback because some people were like, well, I'm allowed to complain because I did this, this and this. And, you know, and then there, there were some parents of older children who were like, you don't even know yet, you know, lady, Mm -hmm. which is true. Like my kids are still young. Um, and I like totally know that when they get older, like it's just going to be busier. I mean, it is, there's, they're going to be in more activities and there's four of them. So there's going to be a ton of commitments, but like, I think that at this very young age, especially we can be super proactive about not falling into the trap of just because all the friends are doing all of the sports. Like my one friend and she likes this, this is the way their life works and it's great for her, but her kids are in swimming and lacrosse and baseball and like Mm -hmm. so many activities in one day. And I think for her, that structure really helps her get through the day. And like for them, that's great. But for me, like that does not bring me joy and that does not bring my kids joy. They're overtired from like having to be at all those places. Um, so yeah, we're just trying to make sure that like, we don't, feel like, oh, we have to sign up for this because everybody else is. Well, it's kind of, it's hard because you realize people are doing it and they're starting younger and then you worry like, oh, is my kid going to get behind? Right. Because you want them to excel. Right. And I certainly want my children to have really positive relationships with their own body and their capabilities. And of course, sports teach you resilience and you learn about yourself and your mind, like we were talking about. And there's so many good parts, but um, so yeah, you want to give them all that. But what I, what I realized when I was watching my older daughter play soccer, and it was probably the year she was seven. um, You know, I think most kids, there's going to be standout kids who, you know, from the age of three, if they start playing, then you can just tell they're incredibly gifted. But for most kids, Honestly, I didn't notice any difference between when my daughter was seven and was had been playing for three years. You know, she probably started when she was four because I had that complex. I was like, she needs to start, you know, and she had a friend who was also seven and was just starting that year. And there was really not that much difference in their skill level at all. And I just don't believe that they have to start so young. I mean, again, there are going to be kids who are exemplary and like, but they're the exception. And for most kids, like if you come to it at seven, you're not going to be behind, you know, at all. And my girls started skiing when they were 18 months because we love to ski. Wow. That's so, so that cool. Was, that was never a competitive thing. It's just like, we love to ski as a family. And so, but you know, they're great skiers, but there are kids out there, their same age, who's probably started when they were four or five and they're the same level, you know? So it's not, you don't have, it's a fallacy. I think that they have to start really young to get to get good. I mean, the, the kids who start later are, you know, catch up really fast because it takes a while for their bodies to get coordinated. Right. And so at seven, you know, you're really just coming into yourself as a physical specimen, as a physical creature. And so, you know, my, my daughter had been out there since she was four, but these kids at seven had more coordination. So they just closed the gap, you know, and, uh, 
I think you just have to do what's right for your family and be really mindful, you know, and just be willing to be, you know, to, to not do what everyone else is doing. Yeah. I don't want to remember these years of like, just like, yeah. like taking people to practice just cause I felt like I had to. Yeah. And honestly, yesterday, my son who had, he's played soccer a couple seasons. He's six. Um, mm-hmm. he's played two seasons and, um, he was just kicking around the ball in the backyard and I was noticing like, man, he's like pretty good at that ball work. Mm-hmm. And he's, he's good at that because he runs around our backyard and does it not because right. he's been to like these organized practice once a week for 16 weeks, twice, you know, <laughs> that you just nailed it. Exactly. That's that intrinsic interest that kids have in a sport. And I've written about this for my column on outside raising rippers, which is when, when it's intrinsic, when it comes from that, the kid's own self, like not because someone says you have to go to practice and go to, you know, this organized thing, or, you know, you're six and you have to play soccer or whatever, like not when it's coming from external sources, but when it's his own interest inside the child. And I had that with running, right? Like my dad was never like, go run and join the team and get good. You know, like it, he left me to my own devices. And when kids are left to their own devices, their real natural interests will come up. And it's really cool to watch kids work on those things, you know, like your son probably has this intrinsic interest. And so he's just out there. And that's where the magic happens when they're just out there themselves doing it. I love that. Well, nobody read me wrong. I mean, we're going to this like community, like run this mile monumental mile tomorrow. And like, I'm really excited to see my son like run a race. Like I'm into that stuff too, but just the balance is, I think it's important to pay attention or we can get swallowed up in it. Exactly. Yeah. It's a balance. Like, right. Because I, you know, I love it when my girls play lacrosse and they do well and they're like, their team is working together and, you know, everything's aligning. Um, but there's, you know, so many other pieces to the puzzle and that's just been my own journey too. Like the, the winning feels really good. Um, but doing it feels even better. Okay. Katie, we like, can we just do this regularly? Because, because yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is clearly not enough time. Um, <laughs> Let's do into the podcast questions. Okay. You guys go pick up her book, Running Home. I am going to link to it in the show notes, lindsayhine.com. Um, you know, and, and Katie, I'll be posting about the book on my social media and stuff too. So um super excited about it. I'm I'm really not just saying this as I'm interviewing you. Like I'm really excited to finish it. And I've been reading it like in the mornings, I'll like get my Bible out and I'll read my Bible for five minutes because that's all I can take. And then I will read your book until my youngest two wake up. And it's just been really nice to sit on the back porch and drink my coffee and learn about your life. Oh, good. Well, you know, I love that too, because I, I read sometimes the same a similar way where I'll just read parts of a book and it's like the best way to sort of inspire me and to and to set me into my day. And, um, so I love that you're doing that with running home and yeah, you can buy running home at, um, any, at your local bookshop. If they don't have it, they'll order it or you can get it on Amazon. Yeah. And, um, I think that I'll just say this too. The one, the one thing so far that I've taken to my, my 35% that I've gotten through is like (laughs) truly to, to live, um, live in the moment, like live in, like, you know, like don't be fretting about what's happening next. Like live in what you're doing now. It's so important. Right. Meet your moments. Like as my friend Natalie says, inhabit your your life, inhabit your life moment by moment. And when you can think about it that way, it's sort of, you can rest with whatever's happening, that anxiety, like, okay, just it's uncomfortable, but just inhabit that right now. Cause that's where you are. Totally. 
All right, Katie, what is one thing professionally or personally that you haven't done that you'd like to do still? I love that question. I am, um, I want to write a novel and publish my fiction. And I also want to ride my bike across the country. I've always wanted to do that. And um, I'd forgotten about it. And then uh, I just was remembering that that has been a dream of mine since I was a child. Um, I don't want to ride on the road. Like I'm not a big, if there's ever dirt, I'll take that every day over pavement. But I recently heard that they're putting together um, the Great American Rail Trail, which will link um, the country east to west via rail trails. And um, so I've been talking to my daughter who's 10 and I, I said, let's do that this summer you graduate from high school. <laughs> so that's a little ways off, but maybe they'll have finished the trail by then, but I'm dying to ride my bike across the country. Okay. I did an interview with a couple. You should listen to it. Um, Tom and Deb Gardner. It was, I think it was last summer and mm-hmm. they did that together They're, Um, I think they did it like they just turned 60 and mm-hmm. they rode, they started in Washington and rode to Maine and, um, raised money for back of my feet in a, in, um, another organization. But yeah, it was really cool to hear. I, I interviewed them before the trip and then got to kind of like follow all their social media during the trip. They kind of posted yeah. their stops and stuff and, um, just really cool too. I'm like, I love that you're 60 and you're like, I've always wanted to yeah. do this. They, they did their 50 marathons in their 50 States. And then they're like, now I'm going to do this. Yeah. No, it's so, so cool. great to have those dreams. And like, I'd forgotten about this one and then they still live in us. Right. Yeah. Like, and I think they come out when they're meant to. And it's like, Oh, this is just sort of emerging right now. And I don't have any plans. Like I said, my daughter's 10 and I was like, I joked, let's do it when she's, you know, the summer she's 17, you. Yeah. you know, but it's like, it's good to have those things out there on the horizon. Would your husband be up for it or no? Uh, he would, he's even less of like a, you know, road guy than me. He wants to be like in the wilderness. So he's like, I'll meet you for sections of it. Yeah. Yeah. I love, I, I don't do it often, but my dad's been, um, a mountain biker for quite a while. And I used to get out on the bikes with him quite a bit and it's so fun. Biking is so element and it's just, it's like, it feels like being a child again, Yeah, you know, and it, that freedom that you have just spinning around. I love it. Okay. What is, uh, what's an accomplishment you're most proud of? Oh, um, I thought about this. Um, I have two and one of them, the first is just raising my girls and, and they're such game, like spirited, engaged, little curious girls. And I love that. Um, I love that they have so much interest in the natural world and, in um, and, and just in, living and kind of being present and noticing things. And, um, so that, and then I have to say, you know, running and winning Leadville, that was my first hundred mile race. And, um, like I said, like everything just aligned on that day and, um, I'll never forget it. What is the best, most recent book you've read? I'm a voracious reader, so I always have a book going and sometimes several, but um, this amazing book I finished not long ago is called Unquiet, um, and it's by, I hope this, I get this right, the Swedish writer Lynn Ullman, and it's fiction, but very um, based on her life with her own father, who was um, the filmmaker Ingmar Bergman, and he um, was this very enigmatic sort of um, dynamic father. And it reminded me so much of my own story, um, with my father and kind of learning about our parents. And, and, um, it was incredibly beautifully written book. Um, and I highly recommend it. Unquiet. Yeah. Unquiet. Okay. And we'll Mm -hmm. link to that in the show notes, everybody. Yeah. Beautiful writing. 
who is someone fun, mo- motivating, or inspiring that you'd like to have coffee, cocktail, or tea with? Do you drink cocktails? I don't really drink. I mean, I don't. I, I'm not opposed to them, but I tend to not really drink much because I'm running so much. Yeah. And I just find like I'm getting, you know, to that point where like they disrupt my sleep and whatnot. But that I this is easy. I would love to have tea with the Canadian um, fiction writer Alice Munro. She is my favorite writer by far, and um, she recently won the Nobel Prize for Literature. And she's an incredible writer, and she lives in Canada. Um, and that would be my my greatest the greatest person I can think of to sit down with and talk about writing. And and what's your one message to send to the world? You are stronger than you think you are and keep going. So good. What a great place to end. Katie, thank you so much for thank doing you, this. Lindsay. This yeah. was such a blast. I love talking to you. I Probably know. Like, I want to do it again already. <laughs> <laughs> anytime. Anytime. Yeah. And as I say, best of luck with your, are you still book touring or is it over the book tour? I'm sort of in the, in a really nice little lull and I'm going back out on book tour. Um, in June, I'm going to be doing some events in Colorado at a bookstore in Frisco and some podcasts. And then I'm going back to Leadville to be a guide at their, um, training camp for the run and I'm going to do some events there and book signings and I'm so excited to get back to Leadville it's such a special place now for me and uh to run up at high altitude yeah okay yeah because this will be like the anniversary of your win yes yeah that, well that was in August but I did um I did do the training camp last year which if anyone out there is listening is thinking about doing the Leadville um 100 run the camp is the absolute best thing you can do for yourself because you'll run the whole course oh yeah and that, was a, and that was a really big confidence boost for me is that I had had time on the course so oh, you did um, the camp okay I did the camp yeah and uh so I'm going to do that. And, and then I'm training for um, a big race in August in Europe. So um, I'm going to be getting a lot of miles in and juggling being a mom and a writer and a runner. Will your family go with to the August race? I uh, Hopefully Steve will. I don't think my girls will because they will have already started school. But yeah. I need to um, finagle away to, you know, for childcare. Child so care, yep. Steve can come with me. So much more fun when the husband can come. So much more. And he just, he just has the best perspective on all of this. You know, it's like, it's just running, you know, he really grounds me if I ever get into that sort of like egotistical or lofty place. (laughs) It's always just like bringing me back down in a good way, you know, in a good, in the best possible way. Just do your thing. Just do it. Yeah. Just do it. Just have fun and, you know, take the long view. This is about being able to be strong and, you know, moving through the mountains when I'm 80 years old, you know, like, and I'm not going to go for broke right now. Totally. (laughs) Okay, Katie. Well, thanks so much and have a wonderful, wonderful rest of your day. Thanks, Lindsay. I hope to talk to you again soon. Okay. Bye. Okay. Bye. All right, friends. Thanks so much for listening today. Thank you, Katie, for sharing your story. Go check out Lily Trotters. Get yourself a pair of cute compression socks. LilyTrotters.com. Use the code ANOTHER to get 25% off. And make sure you check out the Another Mother Runner podcast. And also, don't forget to go pick up a copy of Katie's book, Running Home. Since recording the conversation with Katie, I'm actually now more like 50% done. And I'm still loving it. And 
I am going to read that thing all the way through because it's filled with so much good stuff. Katie is such a great storyteller. She's a really great writer and she's a really awesome person. If you couldn't tell from this interview, link to purchase her book is in the show notes at lindsayhine.com. Head over there and make sure you sign up for my newsletter as well. When you do that, uh, if you're signed up for my newsletter, you get the show notes emailed to you every single week. And I promise that's pretty much about the only email I send out once a week. Um, every once in a while, there might be something else, but it's just a pretty sure bet you're going to get the show notes to your inbox on Fridays if you subscribe. You guys can find me on social media. I'm Lindsay Hine 626 on Instagram. I'm Lindsay Hine on Twitter. And we have a Facebook page. I'll have another podcast with Lindsay Hine where we have a group as well. Lots of great conversation and community going on in the group over there. I'd love to have you join us. I also have a Patreon page where you can support the show for as little as $3, $5, $10 a month where you get bonus episodes for doing so. And that's just patreon.com slash Lindsay Hine. Hey, I appreciate each and every one of you for being here and listening today. I hope you have a great Friday, a wonderful rest of your weekend. And as always, I'll see you next Friday.